Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Uh, If you're following along in your bulletin, you can find our text this morning printed there on pages 8 and 9. If you're following along in a pew Bible, you can find Isaiah chapter 35 on page 595. So that's the text that we'll be looking at in a few minutes, and I'll give you an opportunity to turn there. Here in Southern California, I think you could say we're pretty accustomed to dry times. <laughs> we uh, are very used to dry weather, and I, I don't notice that as much until I go travel somewhere else. We were just recently up in Spokane visiting Darcy's family, and I find myself saying strange things to people when I'm in different places, but uh, as the water's running, I'll ask, is that really expensive? Can you really, you know, fill that bath that many times and uh, not have to remortgage your house? Uh, and, and it's in those times when I see water freely flowing that I realize how uh, dry it is around here. Now, we say that this morning, and it's raining, which is a huge blessing to us. And it's interesting to think of the dryness and rain um, and how these forecasts ebb and flow in our lives. But the, the question that we find in our passage, really, is how do you handle the dry times? Not just the dryness of rain or the lack thereof in the weather, but the dry times in life. And it's interesting today, again, as it's raining, we find Advent is often this mix for us, isn't it? Um, for some of us, it's a season of dryness and weariness. For others, it seems like a time of abundance and blessing, and often it's both of those things together, isn't it? The people of Isaiah's day were experiencing dry times. Things were very hard for them. There was international pressure, as we talked about last week. Assyria was growing very strong, and a powerful war machine um, working across the ancient Near East. And conflict for them wasn't going away. It was Um, brewing on the horizon. And within the country, people were not turning to God, but they were turning away from him, and corruption was running rampant in the land, and people were being mistreated left and right. And part of Isaiah's message throughout the book is that this wasn't going to be changing anytime soon. This time of dryness and this time of weariness is something that would last for quite a while. And so what the book raises for us, especially as we come to 35, is we find God's answer for what his people need when they're facing dry times and when they don't know how long those things will last. And so God in Isaiah 35 gives them the good news of this prophecy. And really, it's good news that we can break down into two things as we look at them this morning. But it's really he will come to save them and he will bring them to himself. That's the news that God believed that his people in that day needed to hear. And I believe that as we look at these beautiful promises this morning, we'll see that this is the exact message that we need to hear as well, whether it's in rain or drought. And so let's hear together God's word in Isaiah 35. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 
It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he could help us as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we take great comfort in the fact this morning that you know us. On the one hand, it brings us terror, (laughs) the fact that you know all the things that we struggle with, you know the depths of our hearts, the thoughts and distractions, the doubts that we may have. But yet in Jesus Christ, we find this so comforting because you draw near to us this morning and we pray that you would meet us where we are. We know that some of us come in times of abundance, others of us in a season of want. Some of us coming filled with joy and zeal, others of us weary and faint-hearted. But we thank you that this word of promise meets us all where we are, and we pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us to see the beauty of who you are and what you will one day do, all because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, we'll look at our passage this morning in two main points. We'll consider it uh, first as the promise of God's coming, and then the second, the promise of our arrival. The promise of God's coming and the promise of our arrival. So first of all, let's, let's look at the promise of God's coming. And we find this really in verses 1 to 7, even though the, the whole thing fits and weaves together. But by the time we come to chapter 35 in Isaiah, Assyria's power has grown. There are repeated calls for the king and the people to trust not in other kings, to trust not in Egypt or Syria or Babylon, but to trust in God's deliverance the call not to put their hope in men and nations, but to put their hope and their trust in God's deliverance. But throughout these chapters, God has made it clear that Israel and Judah would ultimately be punished for their disobedience. 
for the ways that they had turned astray from the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. And even Assyria, who would be used by God to punish them for their disobedience, Assyria would also be destroyed and judged. And our passage this morning begins with this picture of the aftermath of all of this sin and of all of this conflict and of all of this judgment. Last week we mentioned the kind of the image that was ringing through those earlier chapters was that of smoldering stumps of these trees which represent kings and nations cut down in judgment. This week, the image that's unfolding as we come up to chapter 35 is that of desolation in the wilderness. But within that context, as we come to chapter 35, we find this promise of God's coming and we find it in a twofold way. First of all, the promise of the land's transformation. The promise of the land's transformation. Verse 1 describes the land as a wilderness and dry land. And then if you jump down to verse 7, it speaks of the land again as a burning land and thirsty ground and a haunt or a dwelling of jackals. And I don't know what pictures come to mind as you hear this, but, but part of understanding these texts is to, to get this image in our head. Part of what comes to my mind goes back to my childhood days of watching the animated Lion King. And uh, you had Simba and Mufasa, but then you also had Scar, the evil lion, the brother. And Scar lived out in the desolate, rocky place, and he had all these evil hyenas that would gather around him. And it's this grayscale haunting imagery, right? That's part of what's going on here. If Lion King isn't really your thing, uh, maybe you've seen images of dry, cracked ground, and you picture that just kind of grayscale picture for miles and miles with nothing growing, nothing vital or watered. And that's kind of the image that's going out on here. But woven throughout these pictures is a message of hope. Verse 2 says, The wilderness and the dry land will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. What happens is into this desolate scene, God appears. He becomes visible and the creation sees him. And when he comes, it says they are glad and they rejoice with joy and singing. His presence brings creation's delight and praise. And they're transformed to reflect his glory and his majesty. And you notice these words of transformation and renewal that happen throughout this picture. What was a desolate desert becomes covered with crocus, those little flowers that carpet the desert after a rain. The barren land now has the glory of the fertile forests where the great cedars of Lebanon grow. The land now has the majesty of one of the closest, most beautiful mountains for them, Mount Carmel, and the rich, lush plain of Sharon that was at the foot of that mountain. Glory and majesty have broken in. And verse 6 says, Waters then break forth in the wilderness, and streams spring forth in the desert. What once epitomized emptiness, burning sand, is now described as a pool containing water and the thirsty ground that would absorb every drop of moisture 
is now an overflowing spring as moisture, water springs forth from it. And that place that was overrun with jackals, and jackals were symbols of of what is uninhabitable and dangerous, now where they once were is a lush, peaceful marshland. And so what we see in this picture is God's arrival transforms the land from desolation and barrenness to wholeness and abundance. But the promise of God's coming isn't just good news for the land. Sandwiched between these descriptions of what's happening in the world and in the land is descriptions of what God will do to his people. And so we see not only the promise of the land's transformation, but we also see the promise of the people's transformation. Just as the passage describes the land in the aftermath of all this sin and destruction that's been going on for years, so also it gives us this vision, this picture of what all this has done to the people of that land. Verse 3 describes them as having weak hands and feeble knees and anxious hearts. They had weak hands. They felt powerless to do anything about the situation they found themselves in. They had feeble knees. They just couldn't go on. They didn't have the perseverance anymore, whether that was from weariness or whether that was from trembling knees and fear. Their hearts were anxious. Literally, their hearts were racing. They were wondering what would happen next after all that they had seen unfold before them. But into this bleak situation that the people find themselves in comes this word of promise in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The good news that strengthens and brings courage to those who are weary and anxious is that your God will come and save you. And when he does, it says he will come with vengeance and recompense. It's ways of saying that he has seen every wrong that has been done. He has seen every hurt that has been endured. And when he comes, he will bring perfect, divine justice and goodness in light of all that has taken place. And part of what the text wants us to see as it kind of interweaves these images of the land being transformed and then the people's condition, is that when God comes to save, he brings transformation, restoration, and renewal of all that was lost. Just as we see that the, the, all that was lost with the land was then transformed to abundance, this also happens with the people's bodies. Those who are blind are now able to see. Those who are deaf now able to hear. Those who had limbs that could not support their weight are now leaping around like the deer. Michael Jordan has nothing on them 
when before they could barely stand. Those whose mouths struggled to put together their thoughts and give voice to what was in their hearts. Now their tongues sing for joy like the greatest singer you've ever heard. God's message to his weary, fearful people is to see the expansiveness of his coming salvation. When he comes, all wrongs will be dealt with and he will bring restoration and renewal and transformation. And all that has ravaged by sin and suffering will be made new, including even our bodies. And just as the creation when God comes is made whole and it's made abundant and it displays his glory and his majesty, so also when he comes, his people are restored and transformed and made whole and abundant and once again reflect the glory and the majesty of the God that they were created to image. They're beautiful words of promise, aren't they? And they're words of promise not only to the people of Isaiah's day, but these promises come to us as well. They meet us in our barrenness. They meet us in the wilderness. They come to us in the dry places of our lives. And they give us a picture of hope. What are the barren places of your life? What's the dry season that just seems like it will never end? Later in verse 10, the text will describe the plight of humankind as one of sorrow and sighing. Sorrow and sighing. What brings you tears? What brings that lump in your throat when you think about it? What makes you groan with longing? for things to just be different. The message of Isaiah 35 is God has seen every injustice, every sin. He's seen everything you have had to bear in this fallen world. And when he comes, he will deal with it. He will somehow make it right. But it's even more than that. He will restore and renew and transform all that has been lost. Personally, I think this is one of the hardest things causes the deepest doubts in the Christian life. We can hear these messages of endurance and faith, and and I find for myself, I can say, you know, I think I can keep going. I can plod along and wait for the Lord's return. But as I look out and as I see the destruction the dryness, the barrenness, creation distorted and twisted, ravaging the lives of ones I love. I can say, how could this ever be made okay? The text doesn't answer for us the hows, but it wants us to know that God's salvation is so big that the things that, they see, that seem like they would never have life or goodness again can somehow be changed into vivid, technicolor, beauty and glory and life and abundance. That is what God will do when he comes to save his people. The wilderness, the dry places of your life, he will transform into abundance one day.
there will be a weight of glory that will somehow overwhelm the sorrow. And the wonder of this time of year, of Advent, is that it reminds us that this isn't just something that we're waiting for. But this transformation, it has begun even now. We just usually don't see it or or think about it or understand its significance. It's fascinating that as we think back to Jesus' ministry, it didn't go the way people thought it should go, right? Rome was still doing pretty great (laughs) or pretty bad, depending on your perspective. Um, The church wasn't being renewed and revived. People weren't just flocking to Jesus and responding in revival, but they were having trouble with his words, And during Jesus' earthly ministry, John even wondered, John, who we heard about from what Hank said, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, he's in prison and things are not going how he thinks they should be going if God is really showing up right now. And what is the message that Jesus gives to John's disciples? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. God has shown up to save his people. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, showed that God's arrival had come, and he showed that by doing these physical healings and this transformation that the Old Testament had foretold. But now, as Jesus has returned... That transformation continues on, but it's not being expressed as much outwardly or physically, but that transformation and renewal is still taking place inwardly. Those who were completely blinded by sin now have sight to behold the glory and beauty of the message of the gospel. Those of us who once never had ears to hear of the things of God now hear the wonder of his word and his message of love and care for us. Our bodies and our tongues, which used to not work in a way that brought glory to God, are now being used even in their most limited capacities to bring glory to God as we image him in what we do and say. And just as John needed Jesus to say, yes, this isn't what you thought. It's not as glorious looking outwardly as you thought it might be. But Jesus said to him, but God's arrival has come. Transformation is taking place. So so also we, as we look ahead to that future coming, when all is made new, we also need to realize God is at work transforming us inwardly. And this spiritual life that's welling up within us is a sign for us that God's promise is true. We haven't yet experienced it bodily, but we can be sure that by the Holy Spirit, we are being renewed inwardly day by day. And the wonder of the promise that we have to look forward to is when our Lord Jesus comes again, that renewal will encompass us in our totality, body and soul, and the whole earth. New heavens, new earth, transformation beyond what we can even imagine.
That's good news, isn't it? When God comes, his salvation will bring renewal, transformation, and life. But that's not the only good news that he gives to his people as they're enduring these hard times. He also speaks about a journey and a destination. He speaks about a journey and a destination. We've seen the promise of God's coming, but now our second point is the promise of our arrival. And that's really what's found in verses 8 to 10. You see, the scripture calls us to something more than just sitting and waiting for God to come. Even though his arrival will be glorious and even though waiting is our posture. But it shows us that our waiting is a posture of journeying while we wait. We journey while we wait. And verse 8 tells us that in the midst of this wilderness transformation, there's another image that God wants us to see. And he calls us to see a way a road. And it's not just a trail that's meandering through the wilderness. It's a highway, which is this raised up major road that's cutting across all the terrain. And this highway is called the way of holiness. Throughout Isaiah, God is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. And this is his road. This is the way to him. In fact, this road only has one destination. Verse 10 tells us where it leads. It leads to God's home. It leads to Zion. Now, the original hearers of Isaiah may have heard this as referring to coming back to Jerusalem, which was called Zion after exile. But as scripture continues, we find that this term Zion is is much bigger than speaking of, of just the city of Jerusalem or just the mountain where Jerusalem is. But Zion speaks of this mountain and city where God dwells, that mountain that we heard about last week that one day will encompass all of creation. Zion comes to stand for God's dwelling of the new heavens and the new earth with his people forever. And this road goes there. And notice what's not on this road. The unclean, those whose sinful actions had repeatedly led to Israel's downfall and judgment, the unclean can't pass over it, the text says. It's like what we find on the freeway. There's those signs that say who can enter the carpool lane, right? You need to have so many people in your car or a certain type of vehicle. Motorcycles are okay. Uh, If you violate the carpool lane, what happens? A ticket shows up in the mail, right? And that's not a pleasant thing. This is a little bit different than that. The unclean can't even get on this road. It is only for those who are following the way of holiness. Verse 8 says that the fools shall not go astray. Now, this is a little tricky translation-wise. It, it could mean that the road is so safe that even fools can't mess it up. <laughs> it's so safe, it's so clear, they can't go astray. I think it's more likely that it means that fools can't stray from this road because they're not on this road in the first place, since fools in Isaiah in particular refer to those who foolishly and willfully are choosing against God's way and choosing to follow people rather than God. But either way, this road is the safest highway they've ever seen. There are no threats along the way. No lions can get on this road and no ravenous beasts ever set foot on it. And so that's what's not there. But notice who is there. 
Several times um, the travelers are referred to and the terms that are used are the redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord. Verse 8 tells us that this highway belongs to them. Those words there, redeemed and ransomed, they're the key to understanding this imagery. Those who have been redeemed and ransomed means that they were once in bondage. They were enslaved because of debts that they could not pay, and they couldn't save themselves. They had no resources or way to get free, no way to bail themselves out of this situation. But the fact that they're called redeemed and ransomed means that someone has brought them out of bondage. Someone has paid the price for them to be able to go free. And these words of Isaiah 35, then they gloriously look ahead to what the rest of the book explains. That God, because of his zealous love and his compassion for his people, he will come and help them, even though none of them are fit to walk on this highway. He will blot out their transgressions. He will free them from their sins. He will pay the price to ransom them so that they can be set free from the judgment that they rightfully earned. And they will receive the blessedness of living with him in Zion. This highway is for them. The bottom line is that God would act so his unclean and foolish people could come to him on the highway of holiness. And this is part of what we celebrate at Advent, isn't it? That highway has come. The Son of God became one of us, being born as a baby, taking on a human nature so that he could bear our sins. He died on a cross to pay for every unclean thing that we have ever thought or done. He was raised from the dead to deliver us from the death and judgment that we rightfully deserve because of our sin. And he, by his perfect righteousness, has made us fit for the highway of holiness that brings us back to God. Are you on that road this morning? The Bible says that all of us are unclean because of what is in our hearts and we're in bondage to sin. And no matter how hard we try, we can't be good enough to somehow escape or to ransom ourselves from this condition. But the glorious news of the gospel is that God has come to rescue you, that Jesus has come as the way to bring you back to God and to put you on the highway to eternal life. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for the help that he brings, he will make you holy by his blood and fit you for the highway of holiness to bring you back to God. It's a wonderful message, but it's also great for those who are already walking along that way. If you're trusting in Jesus today, this is a message for you as weary travelers along that road. God wants you to know two things from this image, the safety and the destination of the road you're on. 
First, you are safe this morning on the way of holiness. It belongs to you, verse 8 says, not because you were so stellar, not because of anything good that you have done or your track record or your works. It belongs to you because you have been made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. There may be a lot of wilderness ahead. There may be threats all around. But Jesus' resurrection guarantees that no lion or ravenous beast will be able to take you off that road. Paul says that no tribulation, no distress, persecution, famine, naked, nakedness, danger, sword, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And so when your heart is anxious along this journey, either that from your own sin or from the threats all around, be strong. Fear not. Know that you are safely on this highway that is leading you to God's dwelling. And so it calls us to see the safety of this way, but secondly, it encourages us with the destination. This highway has only one endpoint, arrival in Zion. You know, the text began with creation rejoicing at God's arrival, breaking forth with joy and singing. Verse 10 concludes with God's people now arriving in Zion. And what happens? They join in creation's praise. And listen to what happens when we reach the end of that road. Listen to what happens when we arrive. Verse 10 says, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. That just means joy that never ends. Our experiences of joy in this life, they often feel like waves, don't they? They come and they recede. They come and then they recede and fade. But our experience there in Zion will be joy that never ends, joy that never fades, pouring down upon us forever. It says, we shall obtain gladness and joy. You know, life is full of these glimpses and tastes of joy. We get some of them at Christmas time and, and delight and wonder of friends and family and gifts and abundance and, and beauty and all of these things. We get tastes and glimpses and we seek after them. But it says, when we arrive in Zion, we lay hold of, we obtain gladness and joy forever. Why? Because the source of all gladness and joy, God himself will be there forever with us. And then it gives these most amazing words. It concludes with this, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Have you noticed how much these two words, I guess that's four, two words, shape all of our experience? How near these things are always to us? As I've been studying this passage, I've just noticed how often in the day I sigh. (laughs) 
And I've been noticing how often in the day other people sigh too, but we won't talk about that. (laughs) And the sighing that it's talking about isn't the sighing of, ah, that was a great day. I'm just fulfilled in the Lord. (laughs) It's the sighing that's also groaning. It's, It's the sighing of, ah, another moment, another day of life in a fallen world. It's the sighing, it's the groan of the ache that we feel in our hearts over, over what we long for to be true. It's the sighing and the ache, the groan of bodies that are wasting away. It's the sorrow, it's, it's those tears, it's your eyes welling up or that lump in your throat of the sorrows all around. Our experience of joy in this life is one that's always accompanied by sorrow. Even the things that we are most delighting in and giving thanks and experiencing joy about, as we continue to live, those will be a source of loss and sadness to us one day. And if we're not around, they will be memories of sadness for those we love. These things are hand in hand for our experience here in this life. Sorrow and sighing. But God's promise to us is this. When we arrive in Zion to dwell with him, sorrow and sighing, they flee away. They are nowhere to be found. Streams will flow where there was once desert, but tears will not flow from our eyes anymore. And sighing will give way to everlasting song of delight. What will that be like? (laughs) That's life in the presence of God. What we were made to enjoy that Jesus has secured for us on the highway of holiness. Advent is a time of year, as we conclude, we consider this. It's a time of year when we remember that we're between those comings of Jesus Christ, aren't we? It's a time of waiting for God to come and save us. It's a time that's a journey. And we'll see a lot of dry times and wildernesses along the way. We will experience weak hands, feeble knees, and anxious hearts. But the words of promise ring true and strengthen us along the way. God has promised that he will come to save us and that we will arrive in Zion. He has come already in the Lord Jesus to redeem us and to put us safely and securely on that highway to him. And he is with us now by the Spirit to continue to help us as we walk, to help us be strong and to fear not and to cling each day to these promises along the way until our God, the Lord Jesus, comes again and we know what it is to experience the everlasting joy of being together with God forever. Even so, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we find great comfort with how accurately your word addresses the situation we find ourselves in. 
we may feel like we're crazy in this life. We may feel like we're different than everyone else. We may feel like we're the only ones who feel weak and feeble and anxious, and yet your word meets us exactly where we are, and it gives us the hope and the comfort that we need. We pray that you would help us during this Advent season to celebrate all that the Lord Jesus has secured for us and the faith and salvation that we have in him. And we pray that that would also cultivate in us an even deeper and richer longing for him to come again and for all to be made right. We thank you that we can experience how that has broken in upon us even now. And even now the invitation goes forth along that highway for others to come and join us along the way. Will you give us opportunity to point them to the wonder of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.